0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Midtown. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, Life as Gift, Not Gain. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I am super excited to be with you all this morning. Uh, Again, uh, it's a joy. Many of you don't know this, but it's been uh, a long haul trying to get uh, me here to uh, be with you all uh, this morning, but I am excited uh, to be able to open the Word of God with you all uh, here today. I want to rush to give thanks to your pastor, uh, Pastor Jamal, for the opportunity. Again, brother, thank you uh, not only for the opportunity to preach, but for your leadership Uh, Young pastors like me need examples of men who love Jesus, love their family, and love uh, the church. And So, thank you uh, for what you do. And I found out that today, he's not going to like this, but I found out from someone that it's your pastor's birthday. And so, (laughs) so would you do me the kind… Y'all already beat me to it, but if you would uh, put your hands together for your pastor who is simply… Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Um, Again, I send you greetings from Cincinnati, from Reconcile Community Church. Uh, We are watching online and uh, super excited to be here. I am married to the lovely Kristen Woodard. I know you heard that, uh, but she's a saint. Just want to let y'all know she's a saint. Uh, We have our four kids, Brooklyn, Brandon, Braxton, and Braylon. They're all under the age of eight. And so uh, she's a saint. I tried to tell you, she's a saint. Uh, She couldn't be with us this uh, afternoon or this morning uh, because she's actually on call. She's a midwife. And so uh, she couldn't leave Cincinnati uh, until this baby is born. But she sends her love and she sent her carbon copy, uh, which is my oldest daughter, Brooklyn. And I usually say that I'm a better preacher when my wife's here. But since I got my carbon copy here, I guess I'll do okay. You've heard the passage read today. you know, as a visiting preacher, this is not one of the passages that you willingly go and preach. <laughs> it's cruel and unusual punishment what your pastor has done to me today. But I think that we'll find some hope in the text. And so I ask and I pray that as we start, don't check out checking in, because the Lord has something for us on this day. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into this moment right now. Hear from you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would quiet our hearts, that you would open up our minds to be able to receive what it is that you would have for us to know, say, and do. Lord, I pray uh, that the the word would do exactly what it's called to do to begin and to continue the good work that's happening on the inside of us. Lord, when we are convicted and challenged, Lord, I pray that we would draw closer to you. But also, Father, I pray that we would be uh, encouraged and edified, that we would leave this place better than when we came. It's to that end that I say thank you in advance for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So I love my kids, they're hilarious Um, seven, six, soon to be five, and soon to be three. They're crazy, but they're hilarious. There's this thing that they've been doing of late that's very interesting. So we got this house, and we got the house because of the backyard, and the backyard has this hill. They love going down this hill, especially when it's snowing outside. It's not, it's not anything out of the ordinary for them to take one of the tops off of uh, the containers that hold their outdoor toys and, and try to slide down this hill. Now, they usually do this during uh, times when it snows, but as of late, I guess it's because they are tired of sliding down on their butts, they decided to take those tops off and try to slide down this hill with no snow. Now, as you can imagine, as they're trying to get this top to do what they want it to do, it's not cooperating. And so they fall and they roll down the hill and they keep trying and they keep trying and every time they get even more frustrated and they look up to at me at some point and they will yell out, "Dad, it's not working." And I'll look back up at them and say, "Well, that's not what the top is intended for." But they'll keep doing it and they'll keep pulling on that top as they're trying to get it to slide down that hill and it's not working. And so they'll get frustrated. Eventually, they'll quit. But then we have another problem, because now after they have been you know, exhausted in trying to get this to take place, they're now coin, they now have to put their toys back in this, in this bucket. But when they try to put the top back on the bucket, it's not snapping back in place, because they've been spending so much time bending it that now it can't work. And so they come to me again, and they yell out, Dad, it's not working. And I respond to them again. Because you used it wrong over here, it ain't going to work now. I share that story because for many of us, we're just like my kids. We have this uncanny ability to take the things that God created and use them for purposes that they're not intended for. We, we, we can use things like our jobs or our careers or, or maybe that zip code that you live in, that house that you live in, that circle of friends that you live in and, and that you're with, and, and, and we use those things to try to establish our own identity. We, we try to run to these things to get value and satisfaction and worth, and then we have the nerve at times to ball our hands up at God when those things fall through and say, God, they're not working. I just knew that if I was to get that job, that it would make me, that, that I would arrive, that my life would make sense. And you got that job and you realize that it didn't. It didn't work. You just knew that if you got that boo, you've been doing this your whole life. You've been trying to mac. You've put your game together. You finally got that spouse, and you realize they're just as crazy as you. (laughs) God, it's not working. You prayed and prayed and prayed for that child. You've gone from doctor's visit to doctor's visit to doctor's visit to doctor's visit, and you've just known, if I can just have a kid, that my life would make sense. but it still hadn't happened. We, we, we take the things that God created and we have an uncanny ability to use them for what they're not intended for. But there are two other things that we do that we use for the same purposes, and that's wealth and politics. Now, I told you, it's cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> we run to our bank accounts And what we've seen as of late is that sometimes we run to an elephant or a donkey and we realize they're not working. Brothers and sisters, this is not anything new. Solomon, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, is dealing with this same tension. What do we do with wealth and politics? For those of you who may not know who Solomon is, I want to give you a flyby overnight. Just kind of what happened with this guy. He got the awesome opportunity to do to to be asked the very thing that any of us would want to be asked. God says, "What do you want?" And instead of asking for things, he asks for wealth. I mean, for wisdom. And because he asks for wisdom, it's almost as if God gave him almost everything. He's the smartest man, and he's the uh, most richest man in the world. But at the same time, He's the most foolish man in the world because with all of the wisdom and with all of the things, he begins to moonwalk away from this idea that it was God who was the giver of all things. And it's on this pursuit for him trying to figure out a life apart from God that he then takes a pause and he writes this memoir called the book of Ecclesiastes. This, this, this a tale of account uh, that he would give to his son to try to get him to understand uh, what his life was like running to things instead of running to God. It would be Dr. Tony Evans who would say this about the book of Ecclesiastes. He would say it's summed up in this way, that living this life independently from God is a pursuit of the wind, but that it was important for the people to get God into the picture of their lives early on. And it's in this same vein that we see Solomon now sharing with his son his findings on trying to run to wealth in politics. My hope and my prayer is that we would catch the game that he's giving, that we would find uh, and understand the truisms that he's found along the way. In fact, this text is tailored to teach us this big idea that worshiping the idols of wealth and politics will lead one to destruction. But if a believer views the two through the prism of the gospel, these can be used as tools to advance the kingdom of God here on earth. This morning, I want to preach from this thought, use them correctly. Use them correctly. So so, what's the game that he puts us on? What, what is it that Solomon is getting us to understand? The first thing that we have to understand is the frailty in uh, having hope in politics. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me again. It, it says this, If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official, and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Now buckle your seatbelt. We got to go in the weeds. If you were to look at this text, there are two phrases that I want you to underline or highlight if you're on your smartphone. Oppression and this idea of perverting justice and righteousness. What Solomon is trying to get us to understand is that this idea of politics is broken in its fabric and in its makeup. This idea of politics is fractured. He's sharing with us that, hey, look, don't be surprised when you see oppression happening. This This is just the way of the world. And the way that he shares it is kind of ominous because he's saying that the system is set up to protect itself. It's not really focused on those being oppressed. It's focused on keeping the system the same. And it's over and over and over again. It's perpetual. It says politics, left to itself, will oppress. We don't have to go far, do a deep dive in the etymology of this idea of oppression. All we have to do is look at our history. The 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 experiment that is America, if we were to look at the fabric of our country, if we were to be honest, there are parts of our history that are hard because the politics that we have set have oppressed people. It was Dr. Jamar Tisby in his work, The Color of Compromise, where he shares with us this uh, court case called Dred Scott versus Sanford. This happened in 1857. Dred Scott was a slave and he was fighting in the Supreme Court for the freedom of not only himself, but his wife and his family. And he's asking the question, am I truly a human being? And a seven to decision, you know what the Supreme Court ruled? That he was property. That instead of him being an image-bearer, he had to go back into servitude. The system was broken. And this happens over and over and over again. You have the three-fifths compromise. You have the extermination of indigenous peoples. You have the sanctioned expansion of out west. You have redlining and Jim Crow and disparities in banking, the compromise of 1877, and the list goes on and on and on. If politics is left to be our only hope, then you and I are in a predicament because it is broken. Someone will be on the short end of the stick. But then he says there's a perversion of justice and righteousness. This idea, the word uh, perverted, uh, when it is translated in the Hebrew, it it, it translates to rob or to steal away. So what he's saying is that this idea, the construct of, 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 of the politics, it steals away justice and righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we've experienced a lot of this lately, especially in communities like where we planted our church. People who look like me have been on the short end of the stick where we've went to a system hoping for justice and not getting it. We're just in this city. A young lady who's made in the image of God was sleeping her bed and was killed. And people sought justice for her. And the very system that we ran to didn't give her justice. But in fact, it gave more justice to an adjacent wall in an apartment than the person who was made in the image of God. The system is broken. And if we are putting our faith, hope, and trust in this system to fix it, we're in trouble. But why is it? Why is it that this system, the people there that make it up and the systems that are created, why are they broken? Well, the Bible study answer is sin. Genesis chapter three rears this ugly head yet again that not only did creation get marred by sin, but hear me now, the hands in the work of creation is marred as well. It's tainted by sin. And if we're putting our faith, hope, and trust in this, We're ascribing and putting our hope into broken things. Scholars call this total depravity. And then, in 2016, and even in 2020, when the church should have been at its finest hour, we realized that the church has an Achilles heel. For many of us, when we should have put our faith, hope, and trust in the Lamb, we pushed all of our chips in on a donkey or an elephant. In fact, it was Dr. Tim Keller who would tell us that, man, you know if you're worshiping an idol in uh, how that idol has a lion's share on how you react emotionally if it comes through or it doesn't. Some of us are, are walking around with low-grade depression and anxiety because uh, we, maybe our person didn't get in office. Maybe that person is in office, but, but we can't literally get through the day without turning on our TV to check out you know, your favorite news station of, CN, uh, of, of CNN or MSNBC or Fox News just to, to see what's happening at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And we have to ask ourselves a question where's our trust? Is it in a political party? Or is it in the one who came down and died in our place and for our sins? Let me see if I can make this a little bit plain. We're planting a church in Lincoln Heights. In fact, back in the day, you would have had to say Lincoln Heights, Ohio, because it would have been, and it is, the first full-fledged city north of the Mason-Dixon line. It is a fascinating community. It's an African-American community uh, that was made up during this time. Greats like the Isley Brothers and Nikki Giovanni, and for those of you who love football, Spencer Ware and Carlos Hyde, and the list goes on of all of these different people who grew up in the community that I grew up in. Lincoln Heights is a fascinating place. But the story of Lincoln Heights is a picture of the brokenness of politics. You see this ragtag group of African-Americans came together and they uh, put it in their minds that they were going to incorporate. They wanted to make a city. But in order for them to do that, they had to go get a charter. And so what they did was they went and they had a map of all of the area and location, the place where they wanted to uh, create Lincoln Heights. If you have driven through Cincinnati and you've gone up I-75, that highway, if you were to look to your right, there's this small company called GE that you would run into. Lincoln Heights is literally right across the street from there. We're right across the highway. But back in those days in the charter, what they wanted was all of the land where GE sits at. And it was a big, expansive plot of land. But not only did the officials laugh them out of the room, but they wanted to make an example of these people. They said, we'll give you your charter, but not with all of this land. And so they built I-75 intentionally to cut Lincoln Heights off from all of that over there on that other side. Not only did they do that, but they created an open-air gun range that sits right on the, on the backside of our community. There's literally a housing complex that sits right there. They share a fence. My whole life and for kids who grow up now in Lincoln Heights, the background uh, sound, the soundtrack to their life is gunshots. They systematically cut out all of the business sector in Lincoln Heights. So there's no way for, for there to be businesses that could thrive there because the land was cut up in such a way. And then they waited. They knew that the lack of resources, the lack of hope, they knew that over time this city would fail. And it did. It lost its charter. Every time that they came down to the city to talk to officials, to get assistance and help, these officials would not do anything about it. And we decided to plant a church there. Why? Because we truly believe that Jesus is the answer. We believe that, man, people need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. We do believe that the church has the opportunity to push back the very gates of hell there. And so we will stay there, we will love on people, we will fight injustice, why? Because we wanna make sure that people put their hope in Jesus and not in a system. So you have to understand the frailty hope of politics. But then secondly, the thing that we need to see uh, is the danger in the love of wealth. You see this in verses 10 through 17. Now, to be fair, when we talk about wealth and we talk about money, it's good for us to differentiate the two. Uh, Okay, so so, so, so money in and of itself is not bad. Just let the air out the room. The money in and of itself is not bad. The love of money is the problem. God's not anti-wealth. As I said it in the nine o'clock service, I'm sure in a room this big, man, there's some people in here where God done blessed you. Blessed you mightily. And some of the people in the the church say, blessed you mightily, Doc. He done opened up the, the, the floodgates of heaven for you. As one of my best friends would say, your money longer than train smoke. God's not anti-wealth. It's when we make wealth our God that we run into a problem. You see, it was the OJs. I'm dating myself. I know this. But the OJs, they said it best for the love of money. People will lie, Lord. They will cheat. People don't care who they hurt or they beat. A woman will sell her precious body for a small piece of paper. It carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, green. And some of y'all already started singing the rest of the song. It's true. The idol of wealth can lead us to do some very strange things, to try to get from it, to provide something that it is never capable of giving. And this is what Solomon is grabbing us by the lapel to get us to understand. He wants us to understand the danger of worshiping wealth. And there's two ways that he does it. The first thing that he wants us to understand is the tapeworm of worshiping wealth. Anybody ever had tapeworm before? It's horrible. Oh, yeah, I know you're not gonna raise your hand, cause then people gonna look at you funny. Think I'm like, ugh, washing my hands, distance. But you know what a tapeworm does, right? It, it, it has this insatiable des- like, desire to keep the person eating over and over and over and over and over, and over again. This is what happens, and this is what Solomon is trying to get us to understand, that there's a tapeworm as it relates to the idea of worshiping wealth. Because here's the thing. If you put wealth at the center of your life, you're going to keep on having to get it. It's never satisfied. That's why the more you get, there's this tendency for you to want, to want more. It was John D. Rockefeller uh, in his heyday. John D. Rockefeller is, is a crazy individual. Listen to this. At one point in his heyday, his net worth was literally equivalent to 1% of the U.S. economy. This man had a monopoly on the gas and oil industry. 90% of all oil and gas ran through John D. Rockefeller. The brother had money. And someone asked him, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. And some of us today know that feeling. You're exhausted because you thought that if I just got this amount, it would be enough. And you realize that, man, it's not. There's a tendency for you to want more. You think that the more that you have, that it will you know, provide for you and it's not ever happening. It, it just constantly is saying not enough. But can I let you in on a secret? Jesus says enough. The gospel says enough. Our sins are many, but Jesus came in and he died in our place and for our sins when he was up on that cross. And he says, it is finished. It is finished indeed. It's not that it was finished then, but now I need the people to do some other things on the side. No, it was finished. It was enough. And it's still enough. Baked into the fabric of the Christian life is this idea of enoughness, if I can use a word. When all around society is telling you more and more and more, you have this precious thing called Sabbath that makes you pause and be reminded, enough. Enough. You don't have to get on the hamster wheel of trying to get a idol of wealth to satisfy you. You can rest in what God has for you. You don't have to go to these things asking for identity. You can have it in what Jesus has done for you. But not only do you need to see the tapeworm, you need to understand that. But then what Solomon is also trying to get us to understand about this idea of worshiping wealth is that, man, you need to understand the fine print. You need to understand the fine print. Pastor John Bryson in Fellowship Memphis coined this phrase that I love. He says, Idols overpromise and they underdeliver. I like that. Idols overpromise and they underdeliver. That's good. That's just, that's just something about that. That just makes sense. You see, the enemy wants you to get enamored with the benefits package before you got time to actually read the frying print about how much this is going to cost you. He wants you to be enamored with the idea that wealth can actually make you, but he doesn't want you to understand the cost that it's going to be. And some of us know this, right? You, you, you've probably been taking the task at a car dealership, right? They, they do the same thing. They, they show you a car and it's beautiful and they, they're showing you, look, 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 look at the, look at the, look at the, the windshield. Like, look at this. Look, you press that button right there and this is going to come happen right here. And if you flip this down, there's a TV right here and, and they're wanting you to fall in love with the car. They want you to love the car. They want you to love all of the accoutrements of the car. They are trying to get your attention to focus on the trinkets. And when it's time for you to actually, you know, sign that, that, that dotted line, they always come with a piece of paper. It'd be like this long, but they fold it in half and they're like, yeah, you just sign right here and here, right? You get back in your car and you're like, man, I just paid three or four times more than what I thought. It's the same picture. So what, 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 what's the fine print? What is it going to cost you if you make wealth your God? I'm glad you asked. Y'all ask good questions. <laughs> there, there are five things that he shows us in this text. Well, here, here, here they are. Uh, the first thing, it, we can be, it can be found in verses 13 through 15. He basically says in so many words, it's temporal. All of the stuff that you're getting, the wealth that you got, it's temporal. Hear me, brothers and sisters. I've been pastoring for over 10 years now. I never did a funeral and saw somebody bring a U-Haul to the funeral. It's temporal. It's temporal. But then secondly, what he says is, man, be aware that there's gonna be this idea of stress and a lack of joy is found in verse 16. Here's the thing that he's trying to get us to understand is that, man, when you're on that vicious cycle of of making wealth your God, you're gonna be in a cycle of having to protect and to grow and to store your wealth and at the same time hope that it will fulfill you this time. It's a maddening and vicious cycle and it sucks the very life out of a person. But could it be that's the reason why some of us are burnt out? Because we just knew that, man, we got to that point and that was going to be enough. And it wasn't. It's temporal. There's stress and there's a lack of joy. But then thirdly, there's frustration. I've heard it said that the distance between uh, your dreams and reality, that, that, that middle is disappointment. But, but I think that if we were to think about this in light of us putting wealth as a God, it would be what we think wealth will give us and the reality. And that middle that we live in is frustration. I just knew that at this point it would make me. Nope. Try again. And there's this perpetual state of us sitting in frustration. But then he says there's sickness that occurs and anger. Understand that idols are life takers. They're not life givers. Some of us have gone into doctor's offices asking them, man, what is going on with me? And it could be a lot of other things, but maybe it's because you've been giving so much of your life to this idol and all it has done is taken and taken and taken. And you have some residual physical effects from it. This is the stuff that, 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 that the enemy doesn't want you to know. He just wants you to take whatever it is, whatever the idol might be, if it's politics or if it's wealth, he wants you to center that and not worry about this until it comes. And we have to be careful, brothers and sisters. So over this pandemic, I, I've... Fallen in love with this TV show called Billionaires. Anybody ever watched Billionaires before? It's okay. Do not raise your hand because people will judge you if you watch the show. Do not watch. There was a point where I was like, man, this is so dark. I need to like, I'm just going to read the descriptions because this is crazy. Like this is nuts. Anywho, I'm going to tell the story. So I'm going to tell you what the story is about. So You've Had Time It's on HBO Max. Sorry. Um, But here's the essence of the story. Uh, It's this guy who's a part of this investment company, and he, he starts off right. He starts off well, like he had good intentions about this investment company, but then all of a sudden, he got a taste of wealth. And it literally changes his whole trajectory in his life. His whole life is centered around him trying to get more and more and more wealth. He thinks that this is the right thing for him to do. And according to this show, as long as the seasons go, you keep seeing this guy run to wealth. He will use whatever he has to do. He will man, step over whoever he needs to step over because all in all, he just wants the money. And he loses everything. Everything he loses everything his family leaves him he's alienated from his friends his business is tanking but he just thought that this was what he was supposed to do brothers and sisters hear me it costs to worship an idol it costs to worship an idol like wealth but but here's the thing that i want us to understand is that when we run to idols for what they perceive to give us, we're being fed a lie. They cannot give us what we've already been given in Christ. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to run to these things for for identity and worth and satisfaction. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you have an identity that's rooted. You are a child of God. You are an heir with him. You are blessed. You are good in the hood, as they would say. You don't have to run to these things. You can run to him. And so, as I told you, we've been planting this church, Reconcile Community Church, and, and we love to say, man, uh, our tagline is that, man, we want people to be enamored with God. I, I love that word, enamored. That that word just it just it does something. Uh, when I was younger, we would say, Man, boy, you whipped. It's when you're in a relationship with somebody and you just in love with them. We would say, you whipped. That's the word enamored. We we want people to be so in love with God that they would be so in love with the Messiah that they would not fall for the tricks or the enemies of Satan or what society is telling them that they are worth and what they have to do to get people to love them and like them. We are there in our community because we want to push people to love Jesus. We want them to run to it. We want them to run to the gospel. We want them to be set free. And can I be honest, in a, in a community where people have been oppressed for a while, people run to wealth, one, as a ticket to get out of the community, but they run to wealth because they think that it's going to make them. And we are there at Reconcile Community Church to reroute them, to say, no, the things that you have, the money in your bank account or whatever, that doesn't make you. It's what Jesus Christ has done and what God says of you. That's what makes you. And by God's grace, we've seen God move in some crazy ways in people's lives. But then lastly, what we see is an antidote that we need. What do we do with wealth and politics? Now, now Solomon being the wisest man in the world, I feel like he's flexing right here because if you were to ask me to preach this text again and give you the antidote, man, I, I, I may give you three other things that I'm about to share with you, man. This is the reason why he was smart. Uh, and so it's like he's giving us advice. He's giving us a good thing, but then it's like offhand, like kind of backhand kind of good things. It's, it's, it's a tension here, but I do believe that there's an antidote. There are three things that we see here from verses 18 to chapter 6, verse 9 that will help us, give us hope as it relates to these two things. The first thing that he gives us is in verses 18 through 20. He says, listen, you need to have a grateful heart. If you want to position uh, wealth and politics and all like, all of these things and how do you navigate with it, first thing you need to have is a grateful heart. You need to have a grateful heart. And the reason why he says this is because, look, God is going to give us blessings. He's going to give us some things. Some of you will have wealth, like I said. Some of you will have access to people who can make those decisions in the political space. He will bless us with some of those things, and that's okay. Be thankful for what God has given you. Enjoy the things that God has given you, and there's something that happens. If you are so focused on thanking God for the things that he's given you, it's hard for you to make an idol of the very thing that God has given you. That makes sense? If you're constantly thanking God for the wealth that he's given you, constantly thanking God for the opportunities that you can share with somebody, it makes it real hard to make it an idol. But then secondly, what we see is to have proper placement of wealth and politics. Hear me, brothers and sisters. Wealth and politics are tools that can be used for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. They're not to be worshipped as God's. Let me give that to you again. Wealth and politics are tools that can be used for the furtherance of God's mission. They are not to be worshiped as gods. That's what he's saying. If we were to look at this as an opportunity for us to to use the wealth that he's given us and the influence in politics to further the kingdom of God, he's saying, look, that's how you use them. They're tools. So then it becomes a stewardship thing, right? What do I do with what God has given me? But then lastly, what he shares with us uh, is this idea that we need to have the appropriate approach to these things, the appropriate approach to these things. If we know that God grants us access to wealth and that he grants us access to uh, influence in politics and these two tools, he's saying, look, if, if God blesses you with those two, give him thanks. You see, the thing about worshiping an idol like wealth, or, or th- it gets you to think inwardly. It makes you start to believe that you did this. You become, in essence, a glory thief. The story is told of Joe DiMaggio, a professional baseball player. Uh, he's warming up for a game, uh, and he decides to bring his son with him. And as he brings his son with him, he thinks it's good for his son to experience this uh, time with his dad. And so he's out there in the outfield, and he's warming up, and he's pitching, and people are starting to come into the stadium, and, and you know, they see Joe DiMaggio. And so they start to chant, Joe, Joe, Joe. Joe, in about five minutes into it, Joe DiMaggio Jr. looks up at his dad and says, Dad, they're calling my name. (laughs) We can be like Joe DiMaggio Jr. sometimes, where we begin to take credit for what God has done. And he's saying, don't do that. Ascribe to God what is God's. He moved. He gave you that. So have have a, a grateful heart for it. I close with this. There, there, there's an opportunity to experience the antidote. What does it look like in a church plant when, when people understand to put wealth in and this idea of politics in its rightful place? So we've been planting this church and it's been hard. I'm not gonna lie to you. Planting in a hood is hard. It's hard, uh, but there's always needs. And so we said from the beginning, look, we're going to love our community and we're going to do whatever we can to meet those needs. And we're going to pray that the Lord would provide the means to match up with all of the things that we're doing. And so when COVID hit, there was an opportunity for us because we realized that there were a bunch of families in our community who didn't have food. And so we got together with our local community center and some other uh, individuals and partners there. And we said, what would it look like for us to provide dinner for some of these families? And so the first time we did it, 300 uh, families came out. And then we realized that, man, we can't stop this, but our budget, y'all, is small. (laughs) And so we began to pray. We said, we're going to keep serving, and we're going to pray that the Lord would provide. And hear me, brothers and sisters, there were churches and people who understood that had means of wealth and they realized that, man, they had an opportunity to further the kingdom of God. And I kid you not, people would begin to send checks to our church. And so for over 12 to 13 weeks, we were feeding people Monday through Friday, 300 people every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, giving them meals. And it was happening because of the faithfulness of people who understood the antidote. But it didn't just stop there. There were opportunities for us uh, as a church plant to uh, get me an opportunity to take a step back from one of the jobs that I work so that I can be more available to pastor. Now, that meant that the church would have to step up and that meant that they would have to like, supply what I would lose when I took the pay cut. And we began to pray because like I told y'all, our budget is small, But then we also had to raise the support for the remainder of our church budget for 2021. Brothers and sisters, in two weeks in December of last year, because of the faithfulness of churches and people, they gave above and beyond. People started calling us, and it was random. But we were able to raise the entire budget in two weeks for this year in 2021, because people understood the antidote because of people's gifts, we've been able to help establish a community garden, like help uh, people establish a community garden and help to make sure that the efforts would continue on. It's not because of what we've done, it's because of the faithfulness of people who understood the antidote. There are little free libraries all in our community now. There's a job readiness program that's taking place where kids are learning tools of the trade and are actually getting paid and they know how to invest and they know how to save because of people's faithfulness. There are opportunities now for things to happen. We got this office space we call The Hub and we're thankful for because we already know that people can use it. There was an opportunity for people who understood the role that politics could play in the kingdom of God and so these council people, a person who's actually a member of our church is a councilman in our community and he began to think through and dream through what would it look like for us to fight back injustice and because of his faithfulness and the faithfulness of those who are in government, they've been fighting with the city of Cincinnati and they are making strides to get that gun range that I told you removed. After 75 years of it sitting there, they're now having conversations about where they're going to put it. But not only that, everybody talks about youth having a space, and they're saying that there's no hope for our youth, but because of these people in these spaces, they understood that, man, they don't need to worship these things, but they can use them to further the kingdom of God by some strange imagination, some strange way, man. These people got on the phone and uh, in some way got the Obama Foundation to start a mentoring program through My Brother's Keeper in our community. That's what can happen when we understand That these are tools that can be used. And why do I share these things? Not to brag, but to invite you into the narrative. What can God do with what he's given you? Don't run to him for value and satisfaction. God has already given you that. But the better question is, what can God do through you? With the things that he's given you, the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.